Hi, we are here with Hospitalists Evaluate Literature for Practice Help. My name is Beth Liston. I am an MD-PhD hospitalist at Ohio State, um, and I'm the Director of Research and Scholarship for our division, although all of my opinions right now are my own and don't represent those of my employer. My name is James Knight. I am also a hospitalist, and uh, I'm our clinical director of uh, medical informatics uh, in the Division of Hospital Medicine, also at Ohio State. And again, opinions are our own and not those of our university. This is August 22nd, 2017, and uh, this will either be published today or tomorrow, but that means that something really exciting happened yesterday. Dr. Yeah. Liston. <laughs> yeah, the eclipse. It was, I thought it was really cool, really exciting. Um, if only because millions of people were looking up at the sky at about the same time. But I went to Tennessee, actually, and look, went to the Path of Totality with a group of friends. So August 21st is always a funny year in my life because it's my parents' birthday. They mm -hmm. actually, well, they're one day apart, and my husband and my wedding anniversary. Happy anniversary. Thank you. And then, you know, the eclipse. I feel like there must be some significance in your life. <laughs> so, um, so you, you, I'm sure you had the viewing glasses. And yeah, yeah, we had the viewing glasses. We had a group of uh, three different families and my parents came down to celebrate. And so there were seven kids, ages nine through almost 15. So everyone had the glasses. We put out sheets and made fun shadows. One of my friends gave little mini lectures about what the sun was doing, and we had all researched those fancy things. You made sure you didn't have bogus glasses. Yes, and, yes. Yeah. Well, a fr the friend of mine who was planning this had been planning this for literally 10 years at least. There you um, go. So we had, the, we had the glasses. We had the science all down. It was, it was fun. Um, and when it was completely dark, you could see this, you know, at totality, you could see the stars come out and really look at the sun and see the corona. It was really neat. Uh, and we had, I was here in Columbus, we had just under 90% at the uh, maximum. Uh, and uh, it was, it was I was kind of ho-hum on it, but uh, I had a pair of glasses that uh, my wife left me before she left for work. So I went out and, and, uh, and, and took a look and it was pretty cool. I must say it was pretty neat. And uh, she actually pulled our oldest uh, out of school uh, to uh, watch the uh, peak of it. So good experience for for him as well so yeah science is great right for sure so we are here talking about the article cardiovascular testing and clinical outcomes in emergency department patients with chest pain um, this was an article in JAMA internal medicine um, earlier this year so from 2017 by San Alexander Sandu Paul Heiderich J help. Bhattacharya. All right. And Kate Bundorf. Um, and we chose this article because I think it really reflects a lot of the patients that we might see, although not necessarily in the emergency department. We see these patients when the emergency department calls us um, or when they're admitted because of something else or, um, you know, perhaps because of reasons that we cannot quite identify. Right. Uh, so, uh, the title is Cardiovascular Testing and Clinical Outcomes in Emergency Department Patients with Chest Pain. Did you already say that? I think I did. But Sorry. It bears and, repeating. And, um, and uh, basically, uh, this is a study of uh, almost a million people 
uh, who presented to an emergency department with chest pain over a multi-year uh, span um, in California. Yeah, actually, it wasn't even just in California. This is um, a national study, so it looked across states. Beautiful. Um, I, I gotta say, I love this article. I really love it. I, I think it's complicated, and really, I don't think as hospitalists looking at practice or literature for practice, we're really going to delve into the statistics. But it makes use a lot of the a lot a lot of cool things that we can do as hospitalists, right? Large volume patients, and then creative thinking. This Agreed. is really a good way to think about and analyze a familiar problem for us. So. What they did was take a look at low-risk patient populations who presented to the ER with a normal EKG and normal troponins and try to determine whether following guidelines um, resulted in improved measurable outcomes. So the guidelines, the AACC and AHA guidelines, include a moderate recommendation that says benefits outweigh risks for non-invasive testing before discharge or within 72 hours in troponin-negative patients with a non-diagnostic EKG. So they looked at those patients and then looked at primary outcomes. And the main one that I'm looking at is the acute MI, right, at 70, 30, 180, and 365 days. Right. They looked at um, PCI and cabbage. They, you know, they looked at further imaging as other endpoints, but those, again, are sort of surrogate endpoint measures. They're measures of tests or procedures, not actual patient outcomes. So is that, that one, for me, the acute MI is what I'm most interested in. Well, I think using revascularization as an endpoint is, is especially interesting and controversial, um, uh, given all the discussion we have now about um, whether, whether revascularization actually helps all patients that it is done upon. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, I think, is a good background for the study, right? They're saying, hey, if we do these testings, if we do these procedures, are we really helping our patients and how can we measure that? In this case, they're saying they come back to the hospital with a heart attack. Right. So they used a retrospective cohort analysis. And then here's the creative part. They used weekday versus weekend presentation and they call it as an instrument to adjust for unobserved case mix variation. So what did that mean? So basically, the authors looked back at the two groups who presented to the ED and didn't have a clear MI, ensured the risk factors between the two groups were the same, weekday and weekend patients, and then assumed any testing difference between the groups was a system-level variability instead of a patient-level variability. So this enabled them to act as if they had conducted a randomized controlled trial of people that don't get testing to see if it resulted in different outcomes. So instead of actually saying, okay, we're going to take these patients that otherwise would qualify for testing and see if we don't test them, um, does it change? They took a patient population that naturally didn't get testing because of this weekend, weekday, and compared the outcomes. Right. Uh, which, you know, essentially ends up being a, a major part of their study design ends up being comparing weekday to weekend patients, which is, of course, uh, not actually mentioned in either their objective or their title. Yes, but they didn't do it just to look at the difference between weekday and weekend. They did it to to control for these unobserved variables that we may not otherwise be able to control for. 
um, and assumed that it was, again, system levels. Now, there's a couple of articles that recently have looked at this weekday versus weekend outcome changes, one of which just came out in the Landsat um, and actually implied that perhaps it wasn't system-level variability that changed outcomes, but rather patient variability. However, the authors are only looking at low-risk patients, so that's less likely to apply. The authors of this page, paper, excuse me, and they, all, they controlled for some of those other risk factors. So I think it's reasonable to say that there's probably systems issues that are more likely to contribute on the, in the weekday to weekend changes that they're looking at. Those of you that can't see me on the audio-only podcast are, are unable to note that I'm nodding my head in agreement as, as Dr. Liston is talking. Nonetheless, it is a retrospective analysis, right? They're looking back at databases, and how they did it was actually looked at claims databases from insurance companies. So only private insurers of about 100 and different, 150 different payers across the country, um, and they focused on patients with ED visits between 2011 and 2012, aged 18 through 64, and chose patients only with a diagnosis of chest pain or angina and not MI, intermediate coronary syndrome, acute coronary syndrome without occlusion or other ischemic heart disease. So I don't know, I, I pause on this. I, I think that this is a really maybe important distinction or thing to note that these codes are not always that great and somewhat, I wouldn't say arbitrary, but difficult to choose when you're putting an admission or discharge diagnosis for a patient. Uh, right. Well, you're, you're choosing um, the diagnosis that you were concerned the patient had uh, or that you were treating them for. The physician choosing that diagnosis may or may not agree that that's what they had by the time they're submitting the charge. Yeah. It's a weird... I mean... I. I What's an intermediate coronary syndrome and someone that has chest pain and I'm worrying that it's real, I might put, versus someone, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of variability in what clinicians will code this as on, as a diagnosis. To a layperson, that must just sound like complete nonsense. And to a hospitalist, <laughs> it's just sort of assumed normal, which is, which is sort of one of the unique things about what we do. Yes. And I think we all know that I've, I certainly have chosen intermediate coronary syndrome and not made a huge distinction between that and angina pectoris and someone with a normal EKG and normal troponins. So, not yeah. incorrectly, I would add. Yeah. So because, because I don't know. I, you know, we don't always know at the time. So then they also excluded patients who had another diagnosis for their chest pain at some point, like if they knew it turned out to be PE or COPD exacerbation, presumably. Um, and then those with capitated insurance plans, um, and I'm not entirely sure what that meant. But in the end, they wound up with about a million patients they were looking at across the country during those two years with those diagnoses that they could then assess for outcomes, which is Right, and we're talking about 2011 and 2012 mm -hmm. by way of frame of reference. So then they looked at testing at 2 and 30 days after their ER visit. Now remember that the guidelines would say within 72 hours, so they used two days as a measure of following the guidelines to some extent, and then the 30 days just saying, okay, well, if they went to the ER and they got testing with 30 days, they're probably related. It has something to do with the ER visit or the symptom that led to the ER visit. Agreed. And then they looked at the outcomes of AMI and coronary revascularization at 7 days, 30 days, 180 days, and 365 days after the visit. 
Now, in order to decide how to adjust for risk factors, they also had to do something I think was a little bit funky from a hospital's perspective. They looked at all of the claims from the previous year, and if they said they had a claim for diabetes, then it was that was assumed as a risk factor. If they had a claim for um, hypertension, that's how they identified risk factors was this retrospective claims data. If a patient came in, had those things in a different system, or had not sought care for them, they wouldn't necessarily have been identified as having those risk factors. So, I'm not entirely sure how important it is. It's just of note. Yeah, I mean, I don't know how many things are going to be left out there. I don't know if certain diseases are going to be more or less represented uh, in in that data. Um, you know, but at the same time, I, it's not a bad way to do it. Uh, if you know, I'm thinking about. If I were the one trying to look at the data and, and gather the data, I'm not sure that I would do it differently. Um, but uh, yes, a potential limitation. Yeah, I mean, given the database that was available, right, this huge payer database right. with claims. Um, so what they found was that patients presenting on Monday through Thursday were more likely to get testing within two to 30 days than those presenting on Friday through Sunday, which you know, I think is expected. So in those from Monday to Thursday, at two days, 18% got testing, and at 30 days, 26% got testing, or 182 and 26.1. And then on Friday through Sunday, it was 12.3 and 21.4. And so they point out there was a 40%, 47% more testing within two days and 22% more testing within 30 days on those patients that presented from Monday through Thursday. Although I'm going to say that's pretty low overall. I mean, we have these guidelines that say, hey, everyone should get, or there's moderate recommendation that everyone should get tested within 72 hours, and we're still talking about only about a fifth of patients that actually get those. So. Well, I think this, uh, well, we can talk more about more about that as we get to uh, interpreting the results, but I, I think you, you also have to look at... Um, what we really should be doing with low-risk patients in 2017. Yeah, and, and I think you're right. I think that's what we're going to, towards. So um, there was no statistically significant difference between the patients that presented on weekdays versus weekends. So they looked at all those claims um, data risk factors that they identified and then compared, all right, are we really talking about a system-level difference or are there this hidden patient-level difference that we can adjust for? That doesn't mean that there aren't things that weren't adjusted for, but it does seem like a reasonable approach, a reasonable number of risk factors they looked at, um, and you know, the a priori reasonable hypothesis that there that um, there are systems level effects, and that's what they found. Now, the patients that got tested were older men with higher rates of traditional cardiac risk factors, so they were more likely to get tested if they were older, if they were like male, right. and if they had more risk factors. Again, sort of makes sense, right? Patients who underwent testing did have higher rates of coronary angiography, revascularization, and AMI in each follow-up period, and weekday versus weekends weren't different. Again, it makes sense. We've said that they're higher-risk patients. They're older, and they're more generally right. more likely to need those. However, again, analyses that don't adequately adjust for selection bias can overestimate the effect of downstream resource utilization um, and so when they adjust for observable risk factors, testing 1,000 patients within two days or 30 days of the ED visit 
was associated with more coronary angiograms and more revascularizations, but no significant difference in acute MI admissions. So just to put that in easier terms, um, a thousand patients, when we test them, they get more tests, but it doesn't seem to decrease the number of times they come to the hospital with a heart attack. Right. Um... And then when you compare weekday to weekend, there was also no significant difference in acute MI admissions. So again, a, kind of a meaty point. Right? There's a population that naturally got more tests, not right. because of them, but because of a system. Um, and then they got more tests, but overall didn't have fewer complications or fewer downstream, yeah, downstream complications. More tests in that group didn't mean less acute didn't MI admissions. Didn't mean less MIs, right. Right, or acute MI admissions, but yes, the, by extension, that that didn't mean less right. heart attacks. So, um, and there were no subgroups in which they could identify a specific reduction in acute MI admissions. So they couldn't look and say, okay, well, if we look only at people who had these four risk factors mm-hmm. or who had previous um, cardiac disease, there was, you know, they couldn't identify who actually might have seen a better effect. But this is essentially, this is the patient that you look at in the emergency department and you look at their risk factors before you ever even go downstairs to talk to the patient and you say to yourself, oh, this patient's getting a stress test or this patient's getting a cath. Um, you just, you, you jump there based on your, your pretest probability uh, of disease. And that's, I, I, I think that's what we're seeing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the you know, it's again, no EKG changes, no troponins may have some risk factors, but generally not enough that the clinician said that they were having acute coronary syndrome. Now, what that variable is, I don't know. It's hard to say the clinical gestalt, but if you, if someone diagnosed them as chest pain and angina, um, it seemed like what we did in this, you know, for this million patients didn't change the number of heart attacks they had. Right. And this is really, it's consistent with previous observational studies that said non-invasive testing of patients in the ER um, did, doesn't affect the QMI admissions. But again, you know, in those studies where they're retrospective observational studies, people haven't been able to say there's not another factor that we're not identifying, right? It's hard to say we've caught, we've controlled for everything. So that's where this weekend, weekday thing comes in saying, okay, well, if, you know, we aren't, you know, there may be something we're not looking at. We don't see that there's a difference between weekday and weekend. And so just in the same patient populations, some of them we quasi-experimentally test more and some of them we quasi-experimentally test less doesn't make a difference. So I think that's what this adds. It's another, you know, a creative approach to something that's a difficult problem to solve, but adds to this literature of Doing more doesn't necessarily mean doing better. So, which is one of my favorite topics. Mine too, (laughs) and it's you know we think that doing more and doing all these tests means that it's going to improve outcomes, and I think we're finding more and more that that may not necessarily be the case. Right. Which brings us to how do we approach these patients in 2017? So you you know I think. so I, I think probably most of the listeners of the podcast are familiar um, with 
the heart score uh, for chest pain patients in the emergency department. Um, it was first put forth somewhere around 2008, but in a relatively low number of patients, and then validated in, in a very large number of patients in 2013. We started seeing it clinically used by our partners here, I would say, when, what do you think, 2014, 2015, we started to see more and more of that showing up in documentation. Somebody had assessed somebody's heart score. Um, and, and, and really, you know, uh, to be honest, it's really only become a part of my practice probably over the last 18 months, um, but really in a clinically meaningful way. Um, and uh, again, I think that gets to, the, you know, I've, he I've heard it said, and I don't know who, who knows this or who evaluated this or who knows this to be true, but I've heard it said that it takes close to 10 years to get uh, evidence-based measures into broad practice. And I think this is, uh, you know, an example of that, that we're, we're now four years after this fairly, fairly monumental validation of a nine-year-old study uh, that we're, that we're, we're having this discussion here uh, today. So uh, the heart score, I think, is, has, has really become, you know, my most important tool when I'm assessing a patient who's being admitted to me for, for, um, for chest pain. Uh, and, um, now I'm going to pause and just say, can you go, just make sure to go over it for anyone yeah. who may not be familiar. So, um, so the heart score, uh, basically you take a patient that has, um, symptoms, uh, signs and symptoms suggestive of acute coronary syndrome. Uh, and you don't use it for people with, with STEMIs or, or, or um, you know, uh, other significant issues. But uh, you look at their, you assign points based on risk factors. So the history, uh, which is the probably the biggest um, issue uh, that we have in, in the hard score is the history. You either get zero points for slightly suspicious or one point for moderately suspicious or two points for highly suspicious. Um, but then uh, the EKG, you get zero, one, or two points, uh, depending on um, whether it's got nonspecific findings or ST depression. And then age it plays a factor. Uh, over 65 gets you two points. 45 to 65 gets one point. And then other risk factors, uh, hypertension, hyperlipidemia, diabetes, obesity, smoking, um, uh, family history, uh, prior MI, and so on and so forth. Um, can get you up to another two points. And then uh, the initial troponin uh, and its relationship to the normal limit, uh, less than normal, zero points, one to two times the normal limit, one point, greater than two times the normal limit, two points. So now that I've bored you by reading a bunch of, of um, <laughs> clinical <laughs> criteria, the, the basic idea is that uh, based on your heart score, if you are a low-risk person in the zero to three points category, you have a relatively low risk of a major adverse cardiac event within the next month, uh, low being in the um, less than one to less than 2% range. Uh, but if you're in the uh, four to, I want to say four to six, uh, you're in a more moderate risk category and you have a more significant uh chance of, of having a major adverse cardiac event within the next month. And those are persons that hospitalists should take care of <laughs> that may need uh, further testing um, to make sure that they are um, safe. But at the end of the day, you can have non 
the, the point of all of this is that you can have these patients that have atypical chest pain, that have nonspecific EKG changes, you know, a flipped T wave or whatever, um, and they're still going to fall into a low risk category where they don't need, they certainly don't need urgent testing and they certainly don't need um, um, observation and, and evaluation uh, in, in, in a, either an OBS unit or, or uh, an inpatient unit. So how, put this together, can you come up with a patient that would have the score that, you know, can you put the study into the score? So, um, well, I think the, 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 the study is, for the most part, these patients, um, it, it, except that even, uh, again, when you, you're going to get a point for age greater than 45, which is one of the one of the study characteristics, and then you're going to get you're going to get history points for the others. So you're going to basically all these somewhat higher risk patients are going to have start with a score of three to begin with, and so they're low risk to start with. And then it, again, as I mentioned before, it all depends on the clinical history and right. your impression of the clinical history and my impression of the clinical history could be different. Um, and if we felt that the way physicians coded that end diagnosis actually reflected that clinical history, then it would be consistent, right? So, right. It, you know, as always in medicine, it goes back to history and physical. Some of the basics, right? Less of the tests, more of the patient interaction and and the story. Right, is. right. And, and, yeah, what is the – when you really drill down to the nitty-gritty about, um, you know, exertional symptoms and, and – the nitty gritty of, of the character and location and quality and duration of that chest discomfort and, and all those things that we're taught in the third year of medical school and, and really trying to figure out, you know, how, how typical or atypical is this, is this history, um, for, for angina. Yeah. And to put it in the context, we've said, I think there's a lot of, a lot of information out there that says that what we do, you know, deserves re-looking at whether it makes a you know, what the better outcomes are from doing more, doing less. Um, but there's also that movement towards high-value care, and really that history and physical is almost always going to be your biggest value, and we have to look at more of these expensive interventions that don't necessarily serve our patients well. Well, and insurance companies have caught on. I mean, the, the average uh, chest pain admission with a negative troponin is, is, an, obs, is an obs stay anymore. Uh, until you get a positive stress and, and somebody's getting a cath, um, you know, insurance companies are, are not paying for that as an inpatient stay. Uh, and then we could have that whole discussion about whether that cath should even happen and whether that's helping the patient or not. But uh, that's a different discussion for a different day. Which is why I really like that acute MI admissions, right? Using the real endpoint, not the surrogate measure, right. not the procedure, not the need for X, but how did the patient do? Now, obviously, mortality would be great on this type of study if we could get more, you know, long-term data. But it was looking at one year, so um, acute MI seems reasonable, right. but... So I guess I, I put this together as I don't know that this in and of itself specifically changes practice, but instead adds to this growing body of data that makes us more comfortable with doing less in these settings, um, especially as we start really teasing out what those features are that increase risk as well as what the patients are that are lower risk. I don't know how to put it. Yeah, for me, it sort of validates what I've been doing with the heart score and validates um, uh, 
validates the importance of really, you know, assessing individual risk before you just um, blaze off down this trail of, of either uh, exposing patients to radiation through nuclear stress testing or uh, contrast dye through cardiac catheterization and, and potential revascularization. And, and you just got to, um, uh, you have to think about each one of these things individually. So are you going to take this, you're going to carry this article around with you, bring them, bring it and show it to your residents and students or bring it out when you talk to patients? I don't know if I'll bring this article out, but, but anytime you're looking at data from close to a million patients that sort of validates your way of thinking, um, Certainly, I'll sleep easier at night on the patients that I discharge without without additional testing. Yeah, that's where I'm at, too. I think it, it makes you feel more comfortable. It's a big population study. But it's a, little, it's a little complicated to bring out and just discuss on rounds. It's really not in and of itself um, a huge new direction, but rather a continuation on the current directions. As always, if any of the authors are listening, we would love your input. I think that there is a lot of meet to the analysis. So if there's anything that you'd like to add or seems a little not quite accurate, feel free to, to contact us and correct us. Um, we'd, be, we'd love to have your input. And for anybody else, thanks for listening. And uh, 